0: Our psalm of the day is Psalm 37. We are reading from verses 1 through verse 29. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established By the Lord, when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I've been young and now am old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Now I'm going to ask you to redo that. It may have not been up on the slides. I know that happens from time to time, but uh, this is one of the most momentous psalms in all of the collection. And so, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the of God stands forever. Good
1: morning. Turn to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who borrows, uh, who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. That was great. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I ran that by him, so. <laughs> Uh, we live in an age of scientific exploration, scientific discovery, right? We live in a time where things, maybe a generation or two ago, folks just thought, was mis- thought might be a mystery and will never be dis- the discovered the answer to. Uh, now we know these answers sometimes, right? In the past couple of years, science has actually answered and addressed one of the most profound questions, I think, in our lives which is, why do some people cry when they're happy? Why do you cry when you're happy? It makes no sense, doesn't it? You cry when you're sad. Why, if you're overwhelmed with joy, or if you're overwhelmed with this kind of nostalgia, if your children are graduating, or there's a wedding, why tears? Tears are universally the symbol of sadness, right? They're the very first thing you do when you come out of the womb is cry. If you've ever been around a newborn, you know it takes them weeks before they even figure out how to smile, but they can cry their brains out from the second they're born. Well we usually just thought, well who knows, it's just you know, the human body, the emotions, it's, it's very hard to tell, but scientists have actually looked into this question. They've, they've decided, okay, we want to know why we cry when we are happy. And it turns out that there actually is a reason why folks cry when they're overwhelmed. As it turns out, the reason is the same reason folks uh, experience what my wife calls cute aggression. Cute aggression is when you see a little baby and you just want to squeeze it, and you just want to hug it tight, and you want to pinch its cheeks, and very strange things to do when you see a little baby, right? You just want to grab it and hold it and squeeze it kind of like um, uh, of mice and men and the little mouse. You just want to kind of grab the hold of the thing. Why? Well, what psychologists have discovered is that our bodies are pre-wired for balance. That when something is overwhelmingly distributed to one side, your body subconsciously will send out signals to stop it and kind of rebalance. So those tears are a symbol of... There is so much goodness, so much joy, whatever it might be, so, much, uh, so many good feelings that your body will actually send out tears to rebalance the system. Same thing when you see things that are tender and cute. There's this almost like, I'm going to eat you up, as my wife and kids like to say when they see little babies, that, are, that we are predisposed to balance. The problem is, is that sin has destroyed our capacity to understand what is balanced, that what we think is balancing the scales, balancing the equations, rebalancing the way things ought to be, is usually a lie. And it's usually just pettiness. Jesus wants to talk to us about our anger. He talks actually in, throughout his parables and here in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, anger almost more than anything else. It comes up repeatedly that we're supposed to be loving and not angry and bitter and fault-finding and all these kinds of things. Now, the reason I got into Matthew 5 and then I got back into Psalm 37 and then even further back into this mosaic idea about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is that these verses, these phrases are perhaps, in fact, usually they're at the top of the list, of the reasons why people hate Christianity. Most people will say, "I cannot deal with this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth deity that you think wants retribution and blood and vengeance." Flip to the New Testament, and Jesus says, "Turn the other cheek," and they say, "Aha, you're just abusers that say turn the other cheek." That that what Christianity does is uh, counsel those who are abused to simply take it, and it keeps people in power that shouldn't be in power. This is said repeatedly. And so I just said, all right, I want to look into this. And I began to look into it and look into it, and it just became a part of uh, some reflections that I've had that I want to share with you now. First, most people misunderstand what eye for an eye is. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. First First of all, the myths. As far as we know, no one actually had their eyes gouged out or their teeth broken in the Old Testament. In fact, mutilation is such that if you do that to the image of God, very often there is a capital crime on the person who does it. In fact, the very first time the phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, shows up in the book of Exodus, most people forget that three verses later, a master who breaks the tooth of his servant must allow the servant to go free. They actually forfeit their rights over the person simply for breaking their teeth in an act of violence. So eye for an eye, tooth for tooth has to mean something else and let's get the brass knuckles out and start paying people back. You see, in the ancient world, it would have been normal to assume that those at the higher levels of society get less justice in this life. You could be an evil tyrant, you could be a king who does whatever you want, this kind of thing. It would be assumed around the ancient world That if you mess with the very top, the people that have wealth, land, power, the armies, all those types of things, if you put them under judgment, let's say they do something evil and you put them uh, to death for this, it was assumed that you're going to ruin society. So there was this idea that at the very top, those up there, well, their justice will come in the afterlife. Down the lower rungs, though, you might get double justice, so-called. You might get oppression. You might get uh, every letter of every infraction put onto you. So when the Bible in Exodus and in other places in the Pentateuch says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's actually saying something more about justice. In fact, it is the very bedrock of even the Western legal system. If you do something wrong, you don't just get bloodlust and start going after people. You apply the law. If the law is bad, you change the law. But this is why you get speeding tickets. They've said that, okay, if you break the speeding law, this is the infraction, you pay this much. If you go over a certain number of miles per hour, you pay more, these types of things. What eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth says is, you apply justice equally. And we should point out, everyone is to be given this justice. Later in the Pentateuch, it actually gives commands for the king of Israel, who's not even there yet, hasn't even been enthroned, that he is not supposed to do X, Y, and Z. They have actually this idea of balance, justice, equality. All levels of society are supposed to be receiving the same thing, which means you don't punish those down on the lower rungs more, and you don't free or overlook the faults or the sins or the crimes of those up above. At one point in, I think it's the book of Numbers, it actually says, do this without pity, which is what we would say, we say, do this without prejudice. Do not say, I like him, nah, let's just go ahead and bypass those set of rules. So in our anger, here's the thing. Our anger, in its basics, are always centered around this quest for justice, for balance. If someone does you wrong, and let's say they do something really, really, really wrong, let's say your spouse just treats you unkindly, and then you both feel at odds, and then you're like two bighorn rhinos or bighorn rams just banging each other's heads in the living room, yelling and bickering. Now, my house, that's always my wife's fault. By the way, if anyone can give me a ride home later, um, might need that. But that's the, that's the instinct of anger, isn't it? It's their fault. They did it. They've hurt me. But the lie that we're telling ourselves is that it's justice. I need them to say sorry, and I need them to say sorry in a certain way. Someone at work does something to you, or they neglect something that you need and you look bad before your boss, or whatever it might be, you go, come on, justice. And the quest for justice in the Old Testament is a profound and important question. We want that balance. When those who are weak and oppressed and at the lower rungs of society are treated with abuse, when you go to Cuba and you see those who are oppressed and left and squalor sometimes and those who have uh, all of the, the food they could want and all the power they could want do nothing for those people, your natural cry is justice. We want this stopped. When you hear about abuse, when you hear about all these things, you want justice. The problem is, is you lie to yourself about how much justice you need for yourself. You see, Psalm 37 is the answer for those looking for true justice. It's written by David, and David says, do not fret about the evildoers, which is another way of saying, in fact, another way of translating do not fret, is do not be indignant about the evildoers. Do not be bit out of shape by the evildoers. Don't let them turn you into someone who only focuses on the wrong." that is going on out there in the world. And if you listen to that Psalm closely, you see so often what God is saying is, I'm coming for them. Those abusers, those evil ones, those who are doing the worst possible things in society, they do not have a long leash. I am coming for them, they are under my eye. Essentially Psalm 37 is, calm down, you're not God. But it's still nevertheless, cries out for justice. It still says that it's a good thing to say, Lord, knock down the evildoers' power, remove them, bring uh, comfort to those who are being abused. But then a funny thing happened between the Old Testament and the New. The Pharisaical laws came in, lots of oral traditions, lots of kind of interpretations of these types of things came to bear. And what happened is, is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth became blood vendetta. It became, you have done me wrong. Now eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, I get to do equally that measure of thing back to you. You insult me once, I'll insult you once. Insult me twice, I'll insult you twice. If you ignore me, I'm gonna ignore you back. These personal rifts become the norm. And what the Pharisaical laws have done is, "Bless it, condone it, and say it as a good thing, because eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're now justified in your anger. And so what Jesus says is not on your life. You see, most people, when they read this passage, they think that Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament about. Seven or eight verses above, he's actually said, Don't believe that I've come to destroy the Old Testament. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. So, what he's doing here is what? Correcting how we're applying the Old Testament. And he deals with our anger and says, Your anger is not justice, your anger is your sin. And so what he says is, is do not say, I, it says you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus acknowledges that there are still evil ones out there. But he says there's something in the gospel that internally that doesn't ruin your life. Slanders, faults, insults, those types of little petty things, they're very difficult to deal with, but Jesus says, Christians, let them go. For example, the slap on one cheek, churn the other cheek language. That, by the way, is not a language of violence. It's not a language of suffer abuse. That should never, by the way, be applied to, well, I know you're getting your, your butt kicked all the time in the playground, son, but God says let that happen. No, you don't do, that's not what it's about. Slapping cheeks is actually about social status. You and I live in this uh, world where we assume, we desire that all live in equality. That was not the case in the first century. In the first century, you have lots of rungs of society, and it would not have been uncommon for someone to put you in your place, as we still even say today in the English language. Jesus says, if someone has offered you this slight, someone has backhanded you, we even say backhanded compliments still today, if someone has done this, let it go and give them the other one. Why? Well, what what, what was the norm in the pharisaical world? The norm was, I'm gonna slap them right back. I'm gonna reassert my dominance. I'm gonna reassert my control, my authority. I'm gonna let them know that they can't do this to me. And Jesus says that those who care about their order and their place in society don't get it. That those things are fake. And he talks about someone suing you to take your outer garment. In this case, it would be like your overcoat. And Jesus says, if they want to take that, give them the other, which, by the way, in the first century they would have heard, essentially be naked, give them everything off of your back and say, here, fine. Fine. It is likely that this is a a legal case that is up for debate. It's a gray area. Maybe they had a dispute, maybe some certain amount was owed back and forth, and the person thinks, no, it's my coat, I'm gonna keep this now, and the other person says, no, and they take him to court. By the way, have you ever been taken to court for a coat? No, it's very petty. Jesus says, petty things don't matter. And then finally, this idea of walking a mile, and then going two. As many of you know, in the Roman world, it's actually it's very common throughout the world of the day, not just for the Romans, the soldiers, those in power, could basically enforce anyone, just say, come here, pick up this thing, and let's go, and they could have you walk for a mile without paying you. It was considered to be charity. It's like, hey, come on, lend me a hand, kind of neighborliness, right? Uh, one time, back when I was in college, I remember I had a neighbor that said, hey, can you help me for like a few minutes on Saturday, you know, packing up a few things? I said, sure. I showed up, nothing was in boxes, and 7 hours, you not know, 7 hours later, we were done packing his car to go home for the break. I was not very happy and I wanted to get an eye for an eye tooth for a tooth at that point. I considered moving an apartment just to see if I could make him help me move. But the idea here is that you could actually ask somebody to go a mile with you and not have to pay them. So what do you think happened? Exploitation. You just find the next Jew one mile over and have them go, and then you just suddenly you don't have to carry anything, and you get this kind of activity where you just move it one de- uh, mile by mile down the road, whatever you're moving, whatever you're carrying or, or hoisting, this type of thing. It was exploitation. It was wrong, and the Jews had developed a, la- a language in their day of resist it, comeuppance. You throw it on the ground, you destroy it, you run the other way, you do not do that evildoer's thing. And Jesus says, is a mile worth that? Is it so bad to lift something and carry something for someone when they only make you go for a short distance? Is your pay really all that matters? Or is it more your ego? At the end of the day, here's the problem with anger. We think justice, but Jesus says more often than not, it's ego. It's ego more often than not, it's you, yourself, and your wounded pride. Someone has not treated you correctly, so you need revenge. Someone has not spoken to you kindly. You need to speak equally as unkindly to them, maybe not to their face, but certainly behind their back. Someone has not given you what you think you deserve. The riddle of the gospel is is that, while believing you deserve nothing, you get everything. That somehow by sacrificing the ego, sacrificing that desire to get yours and to have immediate retribution, what you end up finding is that you never really needed the retribution to begin with. God wants to deal with you in your anger, and in a room this size, and frankly just everybody, There are going to be times, day by day, week by week, where you deal with anger. Your children, your marriage, at the work, at at, at your workplace. Even those here in the room with one another. Someone irks you, someone someone offends you, someone makes you angry. This happens a lot. We're all a bunch of sinners at this point. But what Jesus says is, don't care so much about how you're treated first. Care instead about how you love the other person. So, three applications for this. Three applications. First, in the quest for justice, justice is almost always outside of yourself. If you're writing that down, underline the word almost. Almost always outside of yourself. It's not to say that there aren't cases where you've been uh, treated unjustly. But the justice that should actually get you righteously indignant is when you see someone abused. When you see someone in turmoil. When you see someone being treated without the right kindness that they deserve. And you know that you should intervene and you know you should stop this. This is the bully problem. You see the bully on the playground, you want to come in and say, stop. Don't treat that person that way. Justice is about other people, and especially those who cannot take care of themselves. So you are correct if what you see around you in a broken world are things that get your dander up, as they used to say. Those things should, if they are truly issues of justice. And on a few occasions, yes, it has to do with yourself as well, and you are truly treated with injustice. Secondly... You cannot turn someone else's cheek, you turn your own. I have heard far too many times people say, you need to turn the other cheek, you need to turn the other cheek, you need to turn the other cheek. Meanwhile, their cheek remains firmly in north-south position, they will not move, you will not have me give you my other side. It's very easy to counsel this in someone else, but what Jesus says is, turn your cheek. It is very much a personal thing, meaning if you know that you have been wrong, you need to deal with it. Don't walk around churning other cheeks. You can't. This is particularly true in marriage and with children. You cannot say, you need to be say sorry. You need to turn the other cheek. Do it. It doesn't work that way. If they've treated you wrongly, you turn your cheek. Thirdly, lastly, The Bible doesn't just simply ask you to hold back your anger. It asks you to love. It's actually far above and beyond what the world thinks is enough. Uh, Randomly, the way the internet works, over the past week, I saw a a scene from a 1980s basketball game. Uh, A very famous player, I can't even remember his name off the top of my head, gets a hard foul, meaning he just got whacked upside the head. There's literally a, a, a bit of blood dripping down from his temple onto his cheek. And the commentator's like, whoa, Nelly, this whole thing, very kind of trying to downplay that a guy that's got punched on live TV. And in that day and age, or still today I assume, I don't watch basketball, but I still assume, obviously you don't retaliate or you'll get more penalties, these types of things. He immediately rushes this player that's been injured to the sideline, and the assistant coach comes up, and he grabs the assistant by the neck and starts choking him. And he's just doing this, like, anger thing. And you can actually read the guy's lips and the commentators note this. He's saying, yes, take it out on me. Take it out on me. Get get, get the anger out. And the commentators start to praise the basketball player for doing this because he's just dissipated anger and now he's calm, serenity now, this kind of a thing. That's not what the Bible's notion, that's not what Jesus' notion of turning the other cheek is. The very next section after it, it talks about loving your enemies. You see, just simply squeezing a stress ball, just simply yelling into a pillow, just simply letting anger out is not enough. We are not Buddhist. It is not simply about letting those, pa- those passions, those feelings go. Rather, what you say is, they might be an enemy, but I must love them. I need to pray for them, and I need to legitimately let go of the grievance that I have on them. And the sign for that, the symbol of that, is no less than Jesus himself on the cross with their hammers in their hands, with the mocks and taunts on their lips saying, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That the man who absolutely does not deserve what he's receiving is praying for those who have done it. That what Jesus wants from us is not simply dispassionate kind of serenity. He wants you to say, how might I have done the same thing than the way they've treated me? What's maybe causing them to be upset? What's what's causing this in them? Why are they so anxious that, that they treat me poorly in public? And how can I love them with all their flaws? You see, gospel people, people that know that they are sinners, know that they forgive as often as they can. And that means even where they feel like they have been personally wronged, they can let that go, because God has let their sins go. God has said, your sins don't count for you, your anger towards me did not count for you, I came for you even when you didn't want me. So how much more could we do that for each other? Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, asking That the hard life of forgiveness actually be a light burden. You say that your yoke is weak and we trust you, Lord. You say that you will give us your spirit to strengthen us and we trust that, Lord. But how easy it is to be irked, to be angry, to be upset. To be disquieted by those around us who we think ought to treat us better. Lord, we cry out for those who are in abused situations, those who are lacking justice. We pray that you would come quickly in those situations, but for our own pettiness, may you forgive us. We come before you now, Lord, saying um, that you are now more ready to hear us than we are to pray, and you always give more to us than we desire or even deserve. So, we come to you this morning, casting our burdens and anxieties upon you. And we ask that you hear our prayer. So, let's pray for the advance of the gospel throughout the world, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may churn and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's especially pray for our mission partner, Kurt Nelson, asking God to advance the kingdom through East West Ministries.